Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. I'll do a little bit of introduction to what we're going to do, in part because there are a number of people who are going to take this in asynchronously by listening to this on the podcast, uh, also expanding our geographic reach. So I want to thank, first of all, Rabbi Schatz and Ari for framing the learning that we're doing this Elul as a back-to-basics learning. It's really important that sometimes we have a chance to do a reset on our learning. And uh, in this particular case, Suzanne uh, happened to have reached out about some of the poetry that she crafts, and I'll introduce her in just a moment, particularly in the realm of grief and mourning. And during this reflective time on our calendar, it made a lot of sense to us that we would take some minutes to be in conversation out loud for others to be uh, witness to and to learn from and perhaps to chime in as well to talk about the poetry that's associated with grief and mourning and to compare and contrast some of Suzanne's original poetry with the liturgy, which itself is poetic, that comes at the junctures in people's lives where they're marking grief and mourning. So Judaism counts uh, our liturgy often by occasion. And there are sometimes there are occasions that are fixed on the calendar like holidays. Right now we're talking about liturgy and poetry for the occasion, so to speak, of being in the formal cycle of grief and mourning and also being in an emotional and spiritual place of grieving and mourning which may or may not line up. In a little bit, we'll get to talking about the grief and mourning process as it begins even before someone is deceased, because that's the reality of the human experience that we begin to anticipate grief as well. So it's a pleasure to introduce Suzanne Morgan, Suzanne Weiss Morgan, who is a uh, prolific writer and a talented vocal teacher, and also a composer of Jewish music, some of which we've got into experience at Beth Am. I'm really grateful that you brought this idea and this poetry to us, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real, real pleasure to be here and to share some of the things I've written, which I think can help people express perhaps what's in their heart but they don't have the words to bring it to fruition. And I'm hoping that these poems can touch a chord in people. That It's really a, it's a great way of framing exactly what we're trying to do with creating, with crafting poetry for these occasions. Because like I said to you in our initial conversation, Suzanne, the idea of uh, the liturgy for a funeral or a shloshim or even being at the bedside of somebody who is at the edge of death or apparently at the edge of death, all of that liturgy is really meant to be there to serve when you're not sure what to say, when you don't have the words. So that's really the purpose of all liturgy and poetry in this realm. And I experience your poetry as grappling with that exact same problem that our ancestral 
canon writers did, but instead tackling it in the contemporary context and with language that makes sense to us in 2022 and might even capture more brightly the spirit of how people are experiencing death and mourning nowadays. Does that resonate? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Then I think that we should start by having you read for us the introduction, um, uh, just just a piece, a snippet that you excise. Do you want to give a little introduction to where this comes from as I put it up on the screen? Sure, sure. This was an article that I wrote. There was a lot of research done about how to help people who were really grieving. Some people who were having very difficult and prolonged grief and others who were just beginning the grief journey. And one of the ideas that came to the forefront was that a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists had started to really appropriate poetry, and they felt that poetry could really help to heal grief. So there were actually circles of people started around the country who came together, often with a clergy person, but sometimes just with a therapist, and who worked out their grief through poetry. So this is part of an article I wrote about it. When you're grieving, poetry can be both healing and revealing. Hurts long buried can rise to the surface, and complicated chokeholds of thoughts and emotion can find words to express themselves. The rhythm, rhyme, and reason of a poem helps provide a pathway straight to the heart, penetrating deep into your aching bones along the way. There is no correct way to grieve. We weave and wind along the nonlinear path in our own particular way, and there is no judgment or need to compare. Poetry can be there for you through the twists, turns, and detours as a trusted companion and loving, understanding friend. You know, I'm I'm wondering, as you read that, if there is a time that you can recall when poetry did something for you like this, whether in the realm of grief or something else, just to speak about uh, the impetus or the feelings that fed into your writing this. Absolutely. Well, as you see at the bottom here, I ended up writing a book called The Arc of Grief, Poems for the Journey. Its uh, website is www.whitemorningpublishing.com. It's available on Amazon. But all of that put aside, this was the outpouring of grief that I experienced as the result of losing my parents within months of one another several years back. My mother passed away first. My father experienced, I think, profound grief. And a number of months later, he himself had an acute situation in terms of his own health. Hers was more ongoing, lasted for years, but his was acute. And before we knew it, he was in the emergency room, then he was in intensive care. And two weeks later, he had died. So I was overcome, really, with the idea of having had two living parents and suddenly been put in to the orphan category. And I just didn't know how I was going to process all that I was feeling. And I just started writing. And I just was writing constantly on scraps of paper. I remember being at a concert. I was writing in the program of the concert. I just couldn't stop writing. Just enormous amounts of stuff pouring forth. And I started sharing it with some people I knew. And they said, you know, you really should organize this because this could be a book and it could help people through the process. So what ended up happening was I started to think about grief also beyond my own experience to include 
experience of other people who perhaps had been different than mine. And the book got organized into three sections. It begins in the midst and reemergence. And it just sort of carries through this journey, which, of course, is different for everyone. But the idea was to allow people to have touchstones at different points along the way. It really, really helped me process my grief. And my hope was that it would help others in that way. Mm. When I read you writing, there's no correct way to grieve. I hear someone understanding that either you yourself or other people you've witnessed need that affirmation that there is no one correct way to grieve or even on one given day. And part of that, that, that feels really interesting to me is if we acknowledge that there's no correct way to grieve, we're also acknowledging that the vast universe of possible experiences that people have in, in the way of the journey through grappling with their grief, through their loss, through mourning requires, it calls for a growing body, an infinite body of literature or texts or other ways to comfort. Because for every which way that somebody might grieve, there's a different tool that they might need in order to get through some of those narrow places within that journey. So it, in acknowledging that truth, and I agree that that's the truth, there's no one correct way to grieve, um, I, I see affirmation also of the need to continue to create poetry to respond to the human experience of grief. I think that's 100% true. And I know that what I've heard back from people in terms of feedback upon reading the book is that many people read the book many years after they had lost their loved ones and, of course, thought they were finished with the process of grieving and realized that there were pockets tucked away that they had never really dealt with, emotions that they hadn't really managed to process through and needed to be thought about, felt, and dealt with again. And many people said to me, I'm I'm grateful that I had this opportunity to have this exploration and journey again. Didn't know I needed it, but happy to have had it. Yeah, and there it may not always be that poetry is their vehicle to revisit, but in this particular case, it does a lot of things, not only uh, does the poetry itself serve as a vehicle for affirming that other people's processes might be similar, but the more of a body of poetry is out there, the more people have an opportunity to uh, identify with simply the notion of a variety of experiences. When they see somebody reflecting on moments where they were able to go back and smile, they see that that's part of the experience. And when they see people grappling with um, other family and sibling challenges and, and things of that sort, then they can see their experiences, but also even if they don't see their own experiences reflected, they see that there's no, um, there's no homogeny there. It's, it's all a variety of experiences. Yes. And it yeah. really does seem that, that death is being much more spoken about these days than it ever mm-hmm. was before. Different ways, not only of grieving, but different ways of dying, different ways of being buried. It's just much more in the news. You're hearing about death doulas and things that you hadn't heard about before. I think the whole conversation is opening up, and I'm hoping that people are going to be more open to it so it's not so fearful. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think that the more that we uh, move from the realm of taboo and into the realm of 
being cohortative about it, letting people grieve in community, not just by saying the liturgy of Kaddish that's fixed, but by grieving through more specific reflections on their experiences, the more that people will feel the permission to do what they need to do, which is the the thing we keep in tension with the very um, well-constructed boxes of ritual that we have within the Jewish tradition. We say, we've got all of these, Shiva is Shiva is Shiva, and poetry can then be the salve to when it comes to that not being the perfect uh, ritual to graft onto every person's experience. Yes, absolutely. And I think Judaism does a wonderful job of constructing exactly what you said, these things that you move through beautifully, much more so than with some of the people I've spoken to who are not Jewish. But rituals serve people in different ways, and poetry is a different sort of ritual. Uh, that's really well put. Um, I'm going to give Tybal a chance to contribute, and then we're going Great. to move to actually read some of your poetry. Great. So Tybal, go um, ahead. Well, I don't know that it'll be a contribution, but um, when Suzanne was just speaking, I thought of two things, and if you can, it may not be fair. I wanted to ask you to comment. Um, the first thing or the two related things I thought of, and in part because Rabbi Cantor's introduction said that you're also a musician who Mm -hmm. writes. So, and from work I do, the short version is because memory works differently, people who are aphasic post-stroke may be able to sing and uh, have lyrics that they remember because it's a different memory encoding while they can't speak. You know, they have expressive aphasia, but they can still sing songs from their childhood. So one piece is what, and I understand the word part, but if you have a sense of how the poetry might be different than trying to do it through music, and then the related thought is because it's such a much older modality, decades and decades, and there's even a profession of art therapist. Actually, for all I know, maybe there's poet therapist and I'm just out of date, but the longstanding profession of art therapy, I just wondered if you had any insight about when poetry can reach a different part of the grieving than the music or the art or any other modality. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, to start with, there is a profession called music therapy. And in fact, One of the prime candidates who did brilliantly with it was Gabby Giffords, who really was not doing well with language at all. They called in a music therapist and she loved to sing. And through singing, she actually started to regain her ability to speak. So it's very, very powerful. It is a different part of the brain. And absolutely, people who cannot speak can express themselves through song. And from what I remember of the healing of Gabby Giffords, it showed her not only was she singing songs, songs she loved and adored, but she was singing things back in terms of just language that normally would have been spoken. She was literally singing it, and therefore she could get it out of her mouth and have it move through her in a way that she couldn't when she was trying to speak. So that's one part of it. To speak to what you were saying about people who can't access the ability to speak, but you know, can get something from the music or from singing a song. I will tell you that I had some experiences a long time back. I used to work with the um, spiritual director at Cedars 
And I remember one particular time being in the hospital and what he wanted me to do was go from room to room and work with patients who really were nonverbal, but could respond in some way to song. And one of the most striking was a woman who was quite elderly and her daughter was there and the woman just was not communicating at all, hadn't spoken in a very long time, but she loved music. And I walked into the room and I asked the daughter what song this woman might possibly respond to. And she said the anniversary waltz. And I started to sing the anniversary waltz and the woman not only perked up, but sang along. So she became verbal in that way, but only through the singing. And she sang the song. We sang the song. She looked very engaged. And then when the song was finished, it all went away. Her face changed. Her affect changed. So it was quite striking and quite remarkable what the music can do. And they use music for Alzheimer's people now because they know that it processes a different part of the brain. They also know poetry, especially when read aloud, does, I think, affect people differently than prose. And I'm sure there is something to the sing-song nature, the way the flow of the air is, the way the language bends and twists. It's different than prose. So I don't know that it's quite as powerful as the music, but it definitely sits in the in-between between prose and just talking. And for those people who are not able to connect to that communicative power of words, I think it's wonderful to have these bridges. I hope that answers a bit. That was a wonderful and insightful answer. And also a really great question about the, you're getting a thumbs Thank up from Tybal. <laughs> a really insightful answer. And uh, I think that one of the things I appreciate about a question like that is that it opens up my eyes to thinking about who is utilizing and wielding this poetry and under what circumstances, because mm -hmm. grief isn't necessarily an emotion that's directly in response to a recent death of someone who we loved. Grief is so much more than that. And grief can be for a lot of things. It can be for, for our body as it used to be. So I'm also picturing the way that poetry can be healing the grief that someone can have for no longer being the the person, the physical entity that they used to be. Absolutely. And I think grief is very widespread. This particular section of grief that we're dealing with today is about death, but it certainly could be about divorce. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of a friendship. It could yeah. be you're now living in a different place and you really can't acclimate. I mean, there are so, so many things that you could be grieving. So with that, we're going to go to the first section of what of what and whom we could be grieving. And I'm going to put up on the screen a couple of poems in a row uh, that Suzanne is going to read for us about the loss of a parent. So this is called Dear Mother. Dear Mother, I'm thinking about the beginning that very first inning in the great game of life, you were there from the start with your wide open heart and loving eyes, the ties that bound us together present so early on, and they remained until you were gone and beyond. With care and concern, you helped me to learn so many lessons, so many sessions. All my resistance, you met with persistence and never let perfect get in the way. We would huddle and cuddle. And even when there was dissonance, and there absolutely was, I always knew you loved me. 
You tamed my hair, encouraged me to share, and let me see how much I could bear. You urged me to dream and be part of a team, taught me how to handle a fork and knife. All that and how to play the game of life. Dear mother, you were a treasure. The measure of your worth hard to define, so blessed you were mine. You survived great explosions of teenage emotions, commotions when voices had edge. And for a while, there was a wicked wedge between us. But the tension would burst. Sometimes I'd give in first. More often, you'd soften and somehow make peace. And after a good cry and some much-needed space, sweet release. You guided and helped me grow up and move out and move on and get through things I needed to do. Dear mother, that was you. Your love kept on flowing and growing and growing until it was time for your final goodbye. When I felt your permission to cry and cry. You were there for your lifetime and well into mine. I am grateful for all that we had. There are pieces of you deep in me, little fragments of your DNA that are with me each day. I cherish my beautiful memories. I can still breathe you in no matter how long it's been. And when I miss you, I kiss you in my mind. Dear mother, I know you played the game of life like a real pro until you simply had to go. We're going to move almost directly into the next poem, but I want to keep in mind a few things that stand out to me as I'm listening to this poem about one parent and we're turning to another poem about a parent and thinking about the tense that you're writing in and the mindset of the narrative voice in this. And I want to keep that in mind as we move to the next poem, this one uh, named Father. And we'll have Suzanne read this as well. Father. Having you as a father was a real gift. You would lift me onto your shoulders, both physically and figuratively, providing me of you you knew I'd otherwise not see. I never knew how you felt about me when I entered your world. I was born, and just like that, you put on your dad hat. Was it comfortable? Scary? A natural fit? We never discussed it, not one little bit. You always looked out for me, made it look easy. You could present with a hard shell, but I could tell that deep inside where love resides, you were soft and warm and ready. You helped to steady me when I lost my balance, taking on too great a load, finding myself stuck on some wayward road. You'd rein me in, but still give me space, testing and teaching till I found my place. You knew how to lead with grace, letting me save face. You calmed and coached and cared, and I fared all the better because of you. You talked about people who you admired, telling their stories to get me inspired. To look for my passion, you said, do not ration. Take life on full bore. You'll achieve so much more. And if you do fail, you'll still really prevail. For life's lessons been learned. Deep knowing's been earned. You were a fierce force, and of course, you raised me to battle, to rattle the cage, to rage when it mattered. You flattered me, 
played with me, guided, provided. And when it was time for goodbye, I won't lie. It was rough to let you go, my father and friend, there till the end. Deep, deep in my heart, you'll be with me forever. I'm moving forward, out on my own, but never alone. And always sending you much love. I'm thinking about these two poems side by side and what they tell us about the relationship that you had with each of these parents, these parents figures, or that the narrative voice, which may or may not be you, uh, that relationship that they had with their parents. I'm noticing some of the differences between the two. One is that while there seems to be more of a dynamic relationship one that went through tumult and cycles with the mother figure and the author. In terms of the father, there are both questions unasked, but by contrast, an actual conversation remembered. It's as if in the mom poem, the mother poem, there there's so much that's remembered about the many arguments and dynamic times and things taught. But with the father, while there's some space, some distance, some curiosity about what his emotional place was, there there are these very specific moments, the lifting on the shoulders and the the uh, memory of the conversations, the quotes of things that he said and spurred forward. One thing I found interesting when we talked about this originally was this idea that the father and mother are just placeholders for different um different models of parent. Some people's fathers may be more like the mother figure in the poem. Some people's mothers may be more like the father in the poem. But the point is that these poems are really interesting side by side because they show us that even in the grief for a parent, what we remember, our our treasured, preserved relationship, even if we have what seem to be two apparently very healthy lifelong relationships with parents, they're very different from one another. Uh, you know, we don't have an example of a poem here that starts, father, you were a real such and such, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and we certainly could have that poem too, but already you see here the variation and experience. And one question that I had for you is that as we were talking about the, the notion that people write personalized eulogies and perhaps maybe even there's a, a niche market for writing personalized poetry for the deceased. In these two poems, I'm wondering what responsibility you felt to capturing the universal experience of the death of a mother, the death of a father. Do you feel like you can't do that so you don't even try, or you do try to do that with these poems or something in between? Well, I think it's something in between for sure. I did feel that I wanted to be more universal than just specific to myself. I, I sat down, particularly with the mother one, I really wanted to find a construct. And what came to me, even though my mother absolutely was not a baseball fan, this idea of playing the game of life, I really started to think about that because obviously it's the mother who is carrying the child and bringing the child into life. And I thought it starts with that, the decision to carry 
and then to go on to play this game of life with your child all the way through and and the various ways that that could possibly play out. And I knew it would be impossible to hit all the particulars that everybody had gone through. But I also knew there were some universalistic things like the commotion and tumult that happens during teenagehood, the whole idea of the mother usually being the one who fusses more, do your hair, hold your fork like this, that sort of thing. So you're right. The interplay was different. For me, my father was an extremely important guiding force in my life. And I think for a lot of people I know that has been the case. And I think oftentimes, at least in the more stereotypic sense. And I think, again, like you said, we're playing so much more with gender fluidity and what everybody's role is and all of these things in the world. But the idea of the father as the protector, I particularly wanted to play out. And very often the father is larger physically than the mother. And this idea of the shoulders of how being hoisted both figuratively and physically to the shoulders makes such a difference in the way you view life. I also felt when I wrote these two poems, I felt blessed in the sense that I did grow up with a mother and a father, and it made me think about what it's like for single parents and where they have to take both hats on. So they would have to be wearing the dad hat and the mom hat. And how do you incorporate all these things and do that for your child or look for other influences that you can bring into their life to feel that dynamic. But I knew I couldn't hit it all, but I wanted to make sure that I hit enough that when people heard these poems, it could at least touch a small part of who they were with their mother and or their father. That's really, that's really brilliantly um, developed and designed and also a good reason for us to read them together. So we understand that the characterization it's just different, um, the relationships we have with each parent. I'm also mindful that by contrast to this in a moment, this really is a second person speech to somebody who is clearly deceased or I suppose could be said about or to a person not, uh, not yet deceased, but really seems to be intentionally speaking about the person in the past tense, but speaking to them. And by contrast, we're going to focus in just a few minutes after we turn away from this section of the liturgy to this idea that there's also what to say when we're pre-grieving someone. But I see you playing with the images of how do we deal with a person whose story is over, but we're still talking to them. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think people don't stop talking to their loved ones just because their body in form has left the earth. And all of those things still continue on. And of course, it's the cherishing of the person. They always say that if you grieve with immense emotion, it meant you loved with immense emotion and that these things are inextricably tied to one another. Agreed. When somebody has an experience where they're having a strong emotional reaction, it means that they're lending import to that experience. And so the same is true of grief. So clearly these people are important if we have what to say about them. So I want to turn to the traditional Jewish liturgy that's used at a memorial or a funeral service. For those who aren't aware, what's remarkable about a Jewish memorial or funeral service is that there are only two pieces of liturgy. 
there's only re- required, the only liturgy that's required in order to do the burial is a hesped, a eulogy that's written about the person, and the liturgy of El Mali Rachamim, unless there's a special occasion on which we read something that's in the place of El Male. But most of the time, it's El Male Rachamim, which is a memorial prayer we're going to take a look at in a moment as a poet, as a poetic piece. Uh, later, Mourner's Kaddish will come into play, but the truth is that Mourner's Kaddish is really not a part of the burial. Mourner's Kaddish is once the burial is done. So the only liturgy at a funeral that's actually pre-prepared and asked uh, to be performed at a funeral is that El Mali prayer. And I want to point out a couple of things about it, but first we'll look at it together. So we say El Mali Rachamim Shochen Bamromim. So we start by just addressing God, God who is full of mercy, the one who dwells on high, Malay Rachamim, full of mercy and dwells on high, provide or find for rest, proper, correct, complete rest, on the wings of the Shekhinah. And you can even see in the Hebrew here how Shekhin Bamramim and Shekhinah are, are, uh, are put close enough together in the liturgy such that we understand that God is the dweller on high in the realm of, we're calling on the aspect of God that is Shekhinah, that is the dwelling one, and is often, by the way, seen as the more merciful and maternalistic aspect of God. Bima'alot Kedoshim Utorim, in the pure and high uh, heights, kizohar harakia mazhirim, that shine like the shiny places, right? That shine like the sky. Zohar zahirim, see how that poetically plays into the same, uh, taking of a construct and putting it into a later word. I'm pointing this out because that duplication of the use of roots tells me that this is less prosaic and more poetic. There's a, a deliberate use of parallelisms, what we call teak bolotes, or like um, kind of uh, poetic lines that are um, saying the same thing, but saying them in different words, one after the other. So it's a parallelism. Et uh, nishmat, that is directly to the soul of, and then we enter the person's name here. Sometimes, just to contrast it with the mother and father poems, we actually say, Imi Mori, my mother, my teacher, or Avi Mori, my father, my teacher. Um, sometimes people do that with their Rav as well, with their teacher. So sometimes we even put in a sweet uh, title and insert kind of like a moniker in order to give people a sense of the relationship. Shehalcha Leolama, that went on to Olam, the forever place, the Olama, the, the, that, that world that belongs to the Shekhinah, the, the forever world. But Avor Shinad Vutsraka, the Adhaskarat Nishmata. And in this case, we sometimes do say this line, we sometimes don't, but, um, we say kind of on condition of or for the sake of, of the charitable giving that we're going to do conjoined to our love of the memory of this individual. So it's sort of pledging on behalf of this deceased soul that was always a part of uh, this liturgy and has been excised in some places, but it 
it was an addition that was kept and is kept in many people's liturgies. I just don't always hear it in conservative environments. This idea of pledging tzedakah began Eden to Hamanuchata in the Garden of Eden, meaning in that internal heavenly place, may her rest be found. Lachain Bal Harachamim, and thus Master of Mercies, again calling upon God's merciful aspect. Yasti Rehabaseter, see the duplication again of these two roots, right? Um, so so um uh shade them under shelter or shade them under shade, kinafavle olamim of those wings, remember kinafecha uh forever. And again you see the repetition of olam olam olam, which means both world and forever at the same time. The Yitzror Bitzror Hachayim, you can see and hear in there also the duplication and bind up in the bounds of life at Nishmata, that is her soul. Adonai Hu Nachlata, God is her inheritance. Vitanuach B'Shalom Al Mishkava, and her soul um, should be at, uh, or she shall be at rest in peace. Um, upon the like in the in the dwelling place and that could very well be in this mishkava in in the place where she lies so it's really referring to her eternal place of rest where she's been buried and maybe she find a peaceful rest this is really the rip of judaism uh it's may she rest in her place in peace meaning that her physical body is clearly still present because we just buried it and let us say amen I want to point out one thing so as not to dwell on it too long before we move on to Suzanne's next piece of poetry. But what I find fascinating about this is that we once again in the liturgy are rather uh, surprisingly, if you ask me, we're going to a second person voice where we're speaking not to the deceased, but to God. We're not talking about God or about the deceased. In your poem, Suzanne, we have the, for, for example, oh, that went the wrong direction. For example, we have having you as a father was a real gift. So we're speaking to our parent in the second person, but apparently while they're not present with us in that place, it seems that they've, they're deceased, but we're talking to them. In this case, we're talking, in the case of El Male, we're talking about uh, about the deceased and to God about the deceased. So we're directly addressing God as opposed to the deceased, except at the very end. Adonai hunachlata. It's as if we turn away from God. Everything that's praying to God is, may she find shelter in the eternal resting place on high. You who is the dweller, the merciful dweller on high, find this rest place. And then in the very end of the poem, I'd be curious for your reaction, Suzanne, and perhaps anybody else's. We stop addressing God and asking God to give them comfortable eternal rest and instead seem to narrate in the third person, God is their inheritance. May their body, this this uh, mortal bot shell of uh, their goof, their their actual, the place where their soul was housed, may may they find peaceful rest in that place where they're lying. It's as if we turn aside and say, we've been praying to God for that eternal soul. But meanwhile, we pray that she finds rest here in this place that we're presumably standing and looking at, having just buried it, perhaps with dirt still on our hands. I find that turn in El Male fascinating, and I would love to hear as a poet 
any uh, impressions that you have or anyone else's take on that? Well, before I speak, would anybody, <clears throat> would anybody else like to speak? No. I think you're on. You're the, you're the practice. Okay. Oh, Ty- I, oh, Tybo, Tybo, raise your hand. Oh, uh, oh okay. I'm being brave because I've been, I put it in the chat and just say duck, but I'm very interested to know because what spoke to me most, I think also to Rabbi Cantor, was hearing them together, hearing and seeing, because I read and I heard the contrast. And again, it might be because you were, we're all different, even if you have the same, similar relationship to the same parent. I mean, different parents anyway. What I wanted to ask if you're willing to say is where you are in the birth order and just genders, because we're older, so gender is not such a big deal to ask, but genders and birth order, because I there was something in one of them that made me wonder. Well, interestingly, I am an only child, so take it for what it's worth. <laughs> oh, no, that's, I'll just say that's fascinating. It is really fascinating. And I'll say, Tybo, that one thing that Suzanne and I have bonded over in the past is our only child list, because it is a very interesting way to go about life. And also it changes, I think, I say this with both of my parents, thank God, still alive. It certainly changes the notion of becoming an orphan uh, when one is an only child. It's just a different experience. I say that as somebody who witnesses both only children and also people with plenty of siblings uh, losing their parents. It's an extraordinarily different experience. Sometimes it's easier because there's nobody to reckon with a different account of what that human's person, what that parent was as a human, as somebody who interacted with them, because that can create a really uncomfortable memorial experience that people need to grapple with when they realize that their siblings, not just other people, but their siblings had a completely different impression, either more positive or negative or just simply different of the parent that they shared. On the other hand, there is so much less loneliness even with those who have siblings with contentious relationships or even where there is conflict, there is still company. There's, there's a different kind of company uh, having shared loss in that particular way. So I say as, as an only child and also watching other people lose that you're absolutely right that having siblings does change the nature of the way that people mourn. I would certainly agree with that 100% all the way. I think that I interestingly have a student, I'm a voice teacher, who's probably in her middle 30s now, who's incredibly close to her parents, but the parents are older. And sometimes I think to myself, boy, it's going to hit you in a way that you have no idea because she's so entwined with the parents right now. And she doesn't really realize what it's going to feel like. And her father was a second marriage and the father is much older and it will hit her like a ton of bricks, but there's nothing you can do about it. That one of the things I wrote about in the poetry book was this whole idea. You think you're preparing, you think you're preparing, but there's nothing that prepares you when it happens. It still hits you in a way that no amount of preparation could make any difference. You just have to go through it. Yeah. And, 
this because this is a discrete time slot, we're not going into all the the edges of your poetry, Suzanne, but also we could talk about the way in which losing a parent is radically different than losing a different loved one. Yes. Having somebody with a different relationship. We're about to turn to a different experience, but it doesn't necessarily highlight the different types of relationships we have with the deceased. It has to do more with when we're entering yes. this poetic phase. So I agree that we're not talking comprehensively about all the uh, experiences. So let's go to that next poem okay. and have you read it for us and maybe without introduction so we can simply go into it and see what we feel. Okay. Letting you go. As I gently cradle your hand, I'm hoping you still understand. I love you so. How do I continue to let you know? And how do I finally let you go? Your terminal status confounds my rational mind. Find a way out, my gray matter screams. It's not really as hopeless as it seems. Yet my heart is weeping in farewell. Hell has descended. Have we mended all our fences? You exist in a state neither dead or alive, barely surviving. There is no more thriving. Your driving force crushed, hushed by the prison of this horrible condition. Can I bring myself to let you go? knowing I cannot continue to hold you hostage to my own insecurities, my immaturity, my desperate fear, you would no longer be here. You show me in your way you are ready to leave. Steady in your descent, spent, trapped, and sapped of energy and light, anything that made you previously vibrant and bright. I see you. I hear your silent screams. I sense your dreams desiring release, and I want your anguished purgatory to cease. You must be freed to reclaim your brilliant, beautiful, true soul, whole, radiant, and complete, the special treat the universe eagerly awaits. Death must be faced. I must let you go, allowing your ascent to that heavenly sight, taking flight with the angels by your side as your guides to soar and explore, tethered no more. With this final transition, your mission will be done. Your new journey begun. I love you so and believe you absolutely do know. And I can now let you go. When I was sitting and reflecting on this piece, after we discussed the idea of Gosses, that Judaism has a concept and a name for a person who is what we might call nowadays uh, experiencing brain death or no longer conscious, but um, we're experiencing somebody who is in that liminal time, clearly approaching death. I thought about something that seems like probably an odd analogy, but there's a huge and weighty taboo in most Jewish communities that keeps people from celebrating the birth of a child before a child arrives we don't say congratulations or mazal tov. Instead, we say b'sha'ah tova, may it happen in good time. And there's a superstition against having baby showers or opening up or setting up a nursery before welcoming a child because, uh, well, it's superstition. So it means that we are sort of welcoming mischief to enter if we acknowledge something that hasn't actually happened yet. And the reason why I frame it that way is because by contrast, there is no Jewish taboo when it comes to preparing for death. 
I'd love to hear your reflection on that idea, Suzanne, as poet, because I often encounter people who feel a tremendous amount of guilt that seems to increase the closer that their parent, partner, sibling, spouse, whomever, uh, child, God forbid, but all these scenarios as they approach death, that superstition about speaking about death uh, and, and planning for that death seems to increase as they get closer to that stage. Mm-hmm. And yet there is this permission, which you are certainly leaning on in this poem, uh, that that we ought to and certainly can if we wish speak in the second person to the to the person who's leaving the world and or uh, speak about that and make plans. In fact, I encourage all of us here who don't yet have ethical wills and wills and things along those lines, we, we, we ought to be preparing personally even for death. So how does, is it just natural to you that, um, that you're able to talk about, uh, you know, that you're able to imagine and craft the scenario in the poem where somebody is speaking to someone, giving them permission to go and talking to them about the fact that they will soon be deceased or, like, does it seem perfectly natural to do that because Judaism does that? Or is there some sort of a taboo feeling for you around it? No, I don't think there's a taboo feeling. I actually came at this more from the standpoint of thinking about the person who's in this limbo status and the idea of my being able to let them go. That so often it's this idea of them clinging to life in some way. It's the idea when you're thinking about the many siblings that this one lives in this country or this state and they have to fly in to be at the bedside and the father or the mother is hanging on desperately and then the child finally arrives and then they die. And it's the idea of giving permission on some level for them to exit, to have this transition, to be allowed to be free to their spirit to their soul to to be able to leave the body because they're hanging on for me the other side of it is that i as the person hanging on have to come to some sort of reckoning with those feelings which i wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about this idea that sometimes it's a very selfish thing the person is not there and why are we making them stay when we really should release them if we love them and cared about them and they gave us so much in our lifetime, let them be free in that sense. I think guilt is always something that comes into play because we're constantly going to if only or what if. And the more horrific the journey has been, the more we tend to do that. But this was trying to look at both sides, perhaps my own my the the uh, writer of this not necessarily me but the idea of I don't want to be that selfish to hold on Mm. and I want them to have the permission to go because they're crying out to go and I I hear them I hear their silent screams so I think that um in addition that it's worth acknowledging that in addition to the taboo not being present that we aren't allowed. In fact, sometimes we ought to give permission to somebody to go. Should they be burdened with feeling that we are in need of them sticking around? I agree completely. There's also a, uh, a need in Judaism to reckon with our not knowing when we are going to die 
or not knowing when someone is going to die. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit as we move to the piece of Jewish liturgy around this, why this gets so complex. Uh, I'll tell it an anonymized story um, where I went to go visit someone at their hospital bed. This person was no longer verbal or conscious, but their family was around them, five or six individuals. And I came in to speak to the family and asked if they would like me to do what's called, what's translated to English as the deathbed confessional, but is the V. Dewey. We do a form of V. Dewey all through the High Holy Days. And uh, that's sort of a, a confessional that we do in the High Holy Day season. And there is a V. Dewey specifically for a person as they're approaching death. There's a great teaching in uh, rabbinic literature that says, Shuv yom echad mitato. So repent one day before you die, which is both ridiculous and brilliant because the idea is we never know when we're going to pass. And therefore, we ought to constantly be in a state of uh, pursuing tshuva lest we are to die tomorrow. When I came into this hospital room and I asked if they like me to do the V. Dewey and they asked me to tell them what that was and I called it a deathbed confessional, the family was tremendously upset because I said deathbed confessional in front of this no longer verbal relative and they didn't want to acknowledge that this person was dying. They actually wanted this person to be free of the burden of of worrying that this person was dying. And it's complex because it's pastorally important to uh, be present to a family's desires to discuss death, to discuss it in front of all members of the family, to discuss it in front of the gosses or gossesa, the person who is apparently on their deathbed. But by contrast, the ethos, the hashkafa, the outlook of Judaism is that we have the deceased, or if they're no longer verbal, a uh, an emissary on their behalf to say this confessional acknowledging that they're about to pass from the world. So we have the deceased or someone on the behalf, sorry, the, the dying or someone on behalf of the person who is dying recite the following, my God and God of all who have gone before me. And they can say this in English or in the Hebrew author of life and death. I turn to you in trust. Although I pray for life and health, I know that I am mortal. If my life must soon come to an end, let me die, I pray, at peace. If only my hands were clean and my heart pure, I confess that I have committed sins and left much undone, yet I know also the good that I did or tried to do. May my acts of goodness give meaning to my life, and may my errors be forgiven. Protector of the bereaved and the helpless, watch over my loved ones. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Redeem it, O God of mercy and truth. And by the way, the Hebrew of that comes from the Maimonid, uh, from the end of the poem of Adon Olam, Into your hand I commit my spirit. The reason why that's such a beautiful poetic reference is that it's something we ought to say at night as we put our soul into God's hands. And then when we wake up, we say, Moda'ani or Moda'ani, thank you, God, for restoring my soul to me. This is the ultimate bedtime Shema that we're about to actually say Shema itself by, by saying, I'm entrusting my soul, my, my spirit into your hand. And I acknowledge that I may not and will not someday wake up to say Moda'ani. This is a final just entrusting of our spirit into God's hand. I find that stunningly beautiful. And I like that imagery, that poetic imagery there. 
redeem it, O God of mercy and truth. And then we recite these lines that God is presently reigning over us. God has always been the sovereign being over this universe, and God will be the sovereign reigning being in this universe forever and ever. Let Olam, which also has that play on words of in the next world, Le'olam va'ed. And then Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam va'ed. May God's name that is full of glory be forever. And then the last words on somebody's lips or on their behalf may very well be Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The reason why this is so complex as a piece of liturgy is because it requires us to be ready to say this and to know that we are not ushering death by saying it, but to also express the wishes that God watch over us and over our people. It reminds me, I mean, Lahavdil, it's so different, but I sometimes think about how my kids don't want to brush their teeth because if they brush their teeth, they know that there's like no more dessert possible, right? Because it means that they're going to bed and it's the end of things, right? I, I think that this is that feeling times a billion. Right? It's the it's the idea that somebody is giving up uh, by saying this prayer. And instead, it's intended to be an opportunity to make this confessional, God willing, while one's cognizant and can still do so on their own behalf, such that they have made peace and not just invited peace. They've actually made peace through these words. Um, I'm curious what you think about the idea of poetry that's put in the mouth of the dying, Suzanne. I think this is going to be my last question for you before we wrap. What does it mean to suggest like the, the audacity of that? Would you ever have the audacity to suggest that somebody, you know, this is a poem that somebody could read? Could you imagine writing a modern V. Dewey or is that like, unconscionable from your perspective <laughs> that would be difficult I would really have to think about it I I was thinking about what you said about the family and their horror when you told of what this actually was and I think that's the power of language it just really spoke to me this idea when you tell somebody this is a deathbed confessional that it's the idea of when is it time to give up and what does giving up really mean because I think giving into the process of death is very different than the notion of giving up. And perhaps, again, there's the guilt on their part that they don't want to give up. Should they keep fighting for this person to stay a bit longer? You know, it's that very, very tense kind of pull of the cord between which way do I go and what does it mean? But it is sort of an audacious thing to put words into the lips of the dying. Yeah. I agree. And, uh, and I'll close by first by saying that, that, um, I once encountered somebody in tears at evening minion because they had just buried a parent that morning and they found the Vidui in the back of the sea door and they thought that they had been a terrible child for not having presented this liturgy to their parent to allow them to do it. And we talked, the two of us, for a while about, about how one, uh, can become quite, um, one can think that any little thing that they could have done differently would have yeah. been better. And yeah. so regrets are are quite big at that juncture. And also that the Vidui is there as is poetry generally for when you don't have the words. So if she did have the words to say to her parent, which she did at, at the time of his 
death. She had the, those words and she had those meaningful conversations and perhaps she didn't need the vidui. And so I guess that what I uh, want to end and close and, and thank you. And again, thank uh, Ari Fife, who has been uh, online with us and also Rabbi Schatz for, for crafting this back to basic series. But I want to thank you for every time that you've created a piece of liturgy, Suzanne, that people have been able to say poetry uh, that they're able to put on their lips and their heart uh, when they don't have the right words to say themselves. And so that is the gift of a poet. And we really appreciate you. And if people are interested in purchasing your uh, book, you, they can find it at that link that Ari put in the chat. He put two links in to access um, the book. And we're really grateful that you're a member of the community and that you keep writing and putting these beautiful things out there. Thanks. Yeah. it's Thanks it's a, so much for having me. And it's my it's pleasure. pleasure. And I, I love the poetry to be shared. So thank you for that. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for, for being present for it. And I know that people know where to find you. And if they don't, they can find me and I'll help them find you too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ari, did you want to end by telling anybody what the next class is perhaps? Um, I don't know if you're sure. still around there. I am here. Just pulling up. Uh, tonight we have Rabbi Rambam's uh, ongoing class um, for spiritual poetic expression of the High Holiday Moxor. It starts at 7.30 on the same Zoom link that you're on right now. So we hope to see you there. Fantastic. More poetry. Thanks again, Ari. Wish everybody a sweet, sweet rest of your Elul. And uh, take care. Have a great rest of your day. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.